I told people at that point, I don't care what kind of science I do, I just want to be in the best lab at Stanford that is known for mentorship and for creating and cultivating an environment of, of inclusion and productivity and like helping each other and no judgment. And every time I told someone that, the answer was always the same PI. Like it was everyone always said, oh, well then obviously, you know, join Ben, Ben Bear's lab. That's Dr. Steven Sloan, today on Behind the Microscope. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I'm Bijan Saidi, and today we have with us Dr. Steven Sloan. He went to undergrad at the University of Miami before attending Stanford to pursue his MD-PhD, before ultimately joining faculty as an assistant professor here in the Department of Genetics at Emory University. In our conversation today, Dr. Sloan shares with us his story of discovering research and medicine and the highs and lows he experienced along the way. We also talk extensively about the importance of mentorship and some of the lessons he learned from his PhD mentor, Dr. Ben Barris, and how he is carrying that legacy into his own lab. So without further ado, here is Dr. Stephen Sloan. Do you want to just walk us through sort of yeah, so uh, I grew up in Arizona when I was younger until I was about 11, so through elementary what, school. What part of Arizona? Phoenix. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Have you been? Uh, have I ever been? I've never been to Phoenix, but I uh, grew up in Colorado. Oh, nice. So we used to drive nice. through Arizona all the time. Yeah. And going into California. Yeah, it was it was beautiful. Um, and my family moved to kind of Gulf Coast, sleepier part of Florida when I was about sixth grade. Okay. Um, and so I grew up in Florida. It depends who asks me where I'm from, whether I say Arizona or Florida. Yeah. But um, having been there for you know middle school and high school, I stayed in state for um, undergrad. I went to the University of Miami in okay. Florida uh, and spent my four years there, yeah. which was awesome. Did you go in knowing you wanted to do med school or thinking you wanted to do grad school? Definitely did not know I wanted to do med school. I think I knew I was interested in the STEM professions and liked math and science and that kind of thing. I I remember being at um, orientation freshman year before everything started and you know, a couple thousand people in the room and they asked how many people were pre-med and uh, all of these people stood up and I thought to myself, like, I will never do that. <laughs> like I have no interest. And, um, I think part of that's cause I just didn't have medicine as a background in my family and, you know, no doctors in my family. And I, I think I hadn't really been exposed to what that was. So I came into undergrad thinking engineering, started majoring in biomedical engineering, uh, but definitely not medicine was not on my mind. And I kind of enjoyed the fact that I was not grouped in with, yeah. Pre-meds at the time. <laughs> kind of on the, you're kind of doing your own thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just kind of really loved the science and was getting into it um, and enjoyed not having... I wasn't so much worried about my grades. I wasn't worried about what was going to look good for whatever because I didn't know what I wanted to do anyway. So um, I think that took some pressure off. And then you did... So did you finish out with a biomedical engineering degree? Yeah, so I finished... Uh, so I continued to my BME degree and then about two and a half years in I had started taking some classes in biochemistry and I just kind of really liked the I was learning that biology is pretty cool mm-hmm. um, and so I ended up adding a, a major in biochemistry okay. which was only possible because 
at least at the time in Florida, you know, they accepted all of these AP credits you'd take in high school. So I was able to come in with some, some leeway yeah. for my four years of time there. But biochem and BME, it's pretty heavy duty. Right? It's heavy. That's why I balanced it all out with a minor in glass blowing. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I knew that like I needed something because you're right. It's a lot of time. It's all it's a science, science, science. It's either problem sets for engineering or like reading papers and things. And that was great. I loved it, but I wanted something for the other, you know, side of my personality and uh, thought glass blowing would be a fun thing to get into. Mm -hmm. So between those three things, I was pretty busy. Yeah, it sounds like it. And then how did you get into research? So, uh, so I talk, this is a story that I like to tell a lot because it's all, it's all about like uh, this idea of serendipity. Um, And so when I was, like I said, when I was a freshman, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just wanted to have a good time and learn science and enjoy college. And I was finishing up my freshman year and I was thinking about what I would like to do that summer. And I had a, a good friend that I had met on the, um, in the dorms, basically, who was going out to California for the summer to like write music or something. He's a composer. And, you know, he's like, Stephen, you should come out and hang out with me in California this summer. Okay, okay, awesome. sure. Yeah, that sounds great. I have nothing to do there. I have nothing lined up, no internships or anything. Um, and he's like, oh, you like science, right? I'm like, yeah. And his girlfriend at the time was also living out there and her dad was a, um, you know, he didn't know what the word PI was at the time. But yeah, I think I think he said something like her, her dad is the CEO of some lab or something. <laughs> And I, yeah, sounds sounds about right. I didn't know what, what, what research was really either, but you know, he said something like, I think, you know, you could come out and work for him. I'm like, sure. And I think I sarcastically was kind of like, sure. Like you get me a job and I'll come out for the summer. And about three days later, I got an email from his girlfriend's father uh, saying, Hey, Steven, uh, I hear you're interested in research. Would you like to come out and work in my lab for the summer? I don't really still to this day know what know why he did that yeah. right i didn't send him a cv i didn't he didn't know me oh. just like sure i'll do it <laughs> yeah and I, it's funny like this is one of those serendipitous good faith moments that obviously changed like the whole trajectory of my career but uh so he invited me out and i spent the summer learning what what research was i had no clue i'd never been in the lab i i didn't know what this environment was like and i um it was awesome i loved it i enjoyed like the day-to-day and I was working with these postdocs who I thought were just brilliant and everything we did seemed like magic. <laughs> what kind of work was it? Uh, this was lung development, okay. NOS lung development. Okay. So in no, no way related to what I, I do now, but um, kind of my first foray into like genetics and molecular biology. And I remember dissecting out like embryonic day 13 mouse lungs or something. And it was like the greatest thing I'd ever done. I'm like, this is so cool. Um, and yeah, I just kind of caught this bug that, I think I learned that research was a thing and that I thought it was kind of interesting. And so when I got back to Miami, I knew I should try to find if I can do this kind of thing there. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was kind of what first got me into. That's crazy. So yeah. Just a random friend who drug you out to California. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. there's another story that I tell about that, which is very true is that, so I was so new to the whole thing that I, um, everything I was doing I, I'd never heard of it before. I, I didn't know people did this and that to mice. I didn't know that like you could even take the lungs out of a developing um, mouse or um, what 
this, these molecular biology techniques were. So as an undergrad, one of my big jobs was to do PCR. And that was awesome too. I thought that was like magic. But I definitely had no context to understand like <laughs> what PCR was or like that it was such a common technique or anything like that. So uh, I thought that PCR was something that was invented in this lab, mm -hmm. like that I was like the one person getting to do this like specific technique mm -hmm. uh, and, and how cool that was. I'm like, these guys are geniuses. They figured out this thing. Like how amazing. And I went back to Miami like first week of class. I was taking genetics and I was telling my i went down after class to tell my um professor like kind of brag like oh i i'm really excited for this class i just spent a whole summer doing like genetics and molecular biology research and he's like oh yeah what kinds of things did you do and i said oh this thing that the lab invented called pcr <laughs> he's like oh like where's chain reaction like pcr that i'm thinking of i'm like you know about that too yeah. <laughs> um and uh <laughs> I think I just had a kind of an awakening over the next couple of months, realizing like what was very specific to that lab and what really research was in general, um, which is kind of a fun experience. But. So then did you find a lab to do work with? Yeah. So then I joined, uh, I was the first member actually of a brand new lab at, in Miami, which I would say has now served me very well to have been in that position. Um, again, here's the serendipity that just, I didn't know what kind of research I wanted to do. The lung stuff was interesting. I would have happily gone and done more of that, but I was just kind of walking down the hallway where I'd heard that there are some faculty that are interested in taking students. And I remember there being multiple doors that were open and I walked into one of them and it happened to be this professor, Dr. Julia Dahlman. And uh, we hit it off and she, she was telling me about her research and, you know, invited me to kind of come to the lab and, that was a lab, you know, she studied um, neurodevelopment and zebrafish. And uh, here I am, a developmental you know, neurobiologist now. And I and I think that this is true for a lot of people. Like, I think if I had walked into any of those rooms, as long as I had the right person and kind of mentor, I might be studying liver biology or kidney, you know, blood pressure regulation and be thrilled and happy with my life. But it just I walked into that office yeah. and the... Uh, and that's just the serendipity that we all go through in this experience. Right, but, um, exactly. Yeah, so Sometimes I was there. It's the mentorship and the, and the environment that matters way more than the actual science. Yeah, and yeah. I can speak about that ad nauseum. It's kind of... Yeah. I mean, I have <laughs> questions a, about yeah, that I'll yeah. get into later. But. Yeah. But. So nice. So you did that. And then, <clears> so at this point, as far as I understand, you're, you, you came in, you kind of wanted to do something STEM. You did BME did biochem too yeah. and then had this kind of random exposure to research mm -hmm. so it, it sort of makes sense that you would maybe then pursue a phd but where did the md <laughs> thing come in all right so we'll, we'll keep on the serendipity theme so uh junior year in maybe it was the summer for my junior year some, sometime around then uh i'm in lab pulling out a pipette. We used to um, pull out these glass pipettes by hand sometimes if we we're injecting uh, these morpholinos, uh, just kind of like zebrafish version of RNAi, um, into a zebrafish embryo. So I pulled out this pipette, super long, just, just under the flame, and I'd set it down very stupidly uh, on the bench, got in a conversation, flailing my arms around, gesticulate and next thing i know i had kind of jammed the edge the tip of the glass pipette into my uh pinky and a piece broke off basically got wedged in my knuckle um 
and of course, you know, I'm <laughs> freaking out. I was really embarrassed. You know, yeah. couldn't bend my finger, and I was like, um, I had to go tell my PI. You know, I'd done this stupid, careless thing, and uh, you know. I now have a very different appreciation for what she must have felt at the, like only until this year. Now that I am a PI, do I realize what kind of horror that, that, yeah, fe- that feels absolutely. like, but you know, uh, she was super calm. And the first thing she did is said, she's like, Oh, I, you know, let's go into the microscope. I'll, I'll pull that out. And I was that like, that was her first response. Yeah. And I was like, no, no thank you. You're, you're not going to take <laughs> yeah. any tweezers to my finger. So she takes me to the like, uh, emergency room. That's like on campus, uh, medical, it's got a medical school there too. And um, we see this, the doctor and, you know, the long story short, basically, like, he's, I remember being there and he, he injected my finger with lidocaine. I, and I think I had just learned about, like, the mechanism of action of lidocaine or something in class. And I never really, like, had it other than, you know, like, dental procedures or something. Mm-hmm. And I remember him, like, digging around in my, my finger trying to get the glass out. And uh, and thinking to myself, like, this is a pretty cool job. Like, this sounds fun. Like, I want to, like, I like the idea of getting to, like, be here and, and work with people and, and like, um, you know, try to help them. That glass is still in my finger, by the way. So yeah, he didn't, he he didn't help too much. Out. Yeah, if I stick my hand into, like, a minus 80, I can feel in my pinky still. Really? Yeah, it kind of got wedged down in there. It's too deep to, to expel. But I remember at that moment thinking, it's kind of the first time I thought to myself that, like, what what medicine was maybe like as a profession and that, that might be something that I'd be interested in. And I kind of more and more started entertaining the idea and like working with other uh, physicians and talking to people about the idea of that and kind of realized that I, I thought that that might be something that I, I could be really passionate about. So, um, and how did you find out? I feel like a lot of people don't even know that MD PhD is yeah. like a training pathway. Yeah. So how did you, find someone who had done that or figure out that that program even existed that's a it's a great question because so i was one of those people i didn't know and and when i more and more in that junior year when i decided that i uh was interested in medicine i was having a really hard time because i was like i don't know how i'm supposed to choose between medicine and i liked research a lot i didn't know that there was an option to do both um my pi invited me to an under like uh, to a present at a conference uh, as an undergrad um, some developmental biology kind nice. of regional conference and at that conference there was a random faculty member from vanderbilt i still remember came by my poster i had a poster he was an md phd and we were talking and he you know i was just excited to be able to present my science like right. you know i was undergrad and he mentioned something to me about that he was an md phd and i think i must have said something about how i'm trying to decide between the two and he, he was the one who kind of brought this up and and then was just really supportive he just met me for 10 minutes right like he's i never knew this guy beforehand and he's telling me how he thought i could i'd be really good at this and then it's a great career opportunity and could he help in any way possible and read my essays or help in this application process which i thought was just incredible and as a young student i felt like oh my god like here's someone who doesn't even know me who's like believing in me and telling me to do this thing and it really like catalyzed me to just look into what MD PhD programs were. And as soon as I got back to Miami, I started reaching out to people there about um, the application process, but really people, it wasn't as much of a common thing there. And so mm-hmm. a lot of the administrators um, weren't always sure like how to answer my questions or like what programs look like at different places. And, uh, and, and so, so now I think I feel very strongly like the more outreach that can be done to 
educate people about this combined program is important because it's not something that's always talked about. Yeah. I mean, we talked about that, I think, in our very first episode. We talked about how, like, at dinner when people say, why are you in school so long? And we sort of don't really have a, a really nice answer to them that we're doing an MD and a PhD. Yeah. It just doesn't exist in the, in the like, people just don't really realize that you can do both. Yeah. And that there's advantages to doing both. And we'll yeah. talk about that. Yeah. So cool. Sure. So then you applied yeah. to MD, PhD programs. Yeah. Okay. Did you apply? Were you all in MD, PhD or did you, did you maybe apply for some PhD, some MD? Uh, I, I did go all in. I, I, if I remember correctly, I don't think I applied to any MD only or PhD only. Um, I just applied to a hell of a lot of yeah. PhD programs. Right. How uh, many did you apply to? Do you remember? Uh, 18. 18? Yeah. Nice. 18. Uh, and I, I think I was very fortunate. I had, you know, I'd had a really good undergrad experience. I had done multiple majors and uh, I had great teachers and thought I had a good ex- education. And, like, I think I was in a position that I was very, I was very fortunate that I had the chance to then go interview a lot of places and kind of see what what those programs would be like um which was a really fun mm-hmm. time in my life <laughs> um but yeah nice and then you picked stanford yeah so i ended up choosing stanford um there were lots of great programs i i was particularly enamored by this uh as you can see i i have a hard time sometimes i mean throughout my career it's always been hard for me to commit to very specific career paths and so even once i decided an md phd the idea of what the phd would be in or uh, what kind of medicine i'd want to do was still very open-ended and uh what i liked at the time at about stanford was i liked that there were a lot of research opportunities in the types of fields that i was interested in so i knew that even though i hadn't picked out anyone in particular to work with i um felt that i'd find somebody and um you know i was ready for change i'd been in florida for a long time mm-hmm. <laughs> the idea of going to the west coast i didn't really even know where stanford was yeah. until i went to interview but like uh i think i like the idea of just having that experience yeah yeah that's awesome yeah. so then you got there what was that like coming out of because you came right out of undergrad yeah right? a lot of imposter syndrome mm-hmm. uh multiple reasons so number one just moving across the country i don't know anybody in northern california i have no family um kind of you're there alone so there's that um and i gotta say you know miami was a great school but i definitely had these ideas in my mind that like i was going to be out of my league at stanford or that like um I, I wouldn't be able to keep up with people who had gone to more elite schools or something like that for their undergrad and so i was pretty nervous coming in um and i remember talking to a lot of people about that feeling mm-hmm. which obviously i much <laughs> more readily appreciate now is such a common thing right for everybody yeah um but uh but i loved it you know i mean the first couple of years there were just amazing stanford was like a playground basically a scientific playground yeah. <laughs> um and med school was just a blast and not that med school was easy because med school is not an easy thing but for the first time in my life I didn't have two majors in glass blowing and all these other things all the time. Yeah. And it was like, oh, this is not so bad. I just get to focus on medicine for like all day. That's great. Yeah, and uh, it's like laid out for you, do yeah. this. And yeah. Yeah. So I actually found that routine mm-hmm. comforting and uh, 
easy is not the right word, but just uh, it kind of felt right. And I, I really enjoyed the that time in med school. I know a lot of people don't love <laughs> those first year. I guess it depends where you are at Stanford. It's kind of traditional two full years of okay. uh, preclinical. And uh, yeah, I loved it. But when you do rotations at Stanford, do you do you, you do that? You do the first two years, take step. And then, so we rotate. We rotated during, during those first two years. So you would do one rotation in the fall of your first. Sorry, the spring of your first year. So like you're in class and you're rotating at the really? same time. Yeah. Okay. And then you had a long rotation in the summer. Yeah. And then you do your third rotation in the winter. Sorry, the fall that you come back every second year. So two of your three rotations okay. are during class time. Okay. And then you, presumably, then in the spring have. Just regular class and study for step one. Yep. Okay. Yeah, you finish step one, and by the time you finish step one, you've already picked out your lab and everything because you've been doing your rotation, so, so you're you're ready to go. Yeah. Um, Stanford was a very flexible um, place in the sense that, like, if you wanted to make your summer have two rotations, you could do that. If you wanted to do five rotations during med school, that was fine. Really? Like, whatever you wanted to do, yeah. as long as you could keep up with things, that was okay. And the medical school curriculum was set up at the time in such a way that classes, there was no class on Wednesdays. So you already had one full day off. And then uh, you had two half days per week. So you already had like two and a half days off. And then everything was recorded. So there was a lot of time to get into the lab and kind of figure out if it was going to be a good place or not. So how many rotations did you end up doing? So I did did three full rotations. Yeah, kind of more traditional, like one in spring and then summer and then fall. Okay. Yeah. So can you tell us about sure. that and then finding, finally finding your lab that you ended up doing a PhD in? Yeah, I would love to. So, um, like I said, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. <laughs> I was very naive. I, I knew that there was a certain building on campus that I wanted to work mm-hmm. in. And I was committed to working in that brand new, awesome bioengineering building. And I was like, looking at faculty who were there and there were some great faculty but I was kind of choosing who to rotate with almost just based on something like that yeah um so my first rotation was in a lab that was uh really awesome doing um they had got these mini scopes this is before mini scopes were really a thing Uh, Mark Schnitzer uh, so they implant these little microscopes, endoscopes, really into deep parts of the brain of a mouse. It's a freely behaving animal. So we were looking at the place cells in the hippocampus of a, a mouse. So you could record from an ensemble of like calcium imaging of like, you know, a couple hundred neurons at once. Wow. And then put the mouse into some behavioral context and say like, we're going to watch this output and as the mouse like runs back and forth in a maze or whatever. Uh, and I thought that was cool. Integrated engineering and biology and you know technology and it was in the right building right it's perfect <laughs> it was perfect um and i it was good i definitely like enjoyed the experience um but this was a this was a one of these like giant labs where you don't see the pi very often and spent a lot of time in the basement and um i enjoyed the science part mm-hmm. i'll leave it at that uh, yeah <laughs> um which we already alluded to might not be the most important thing, especially when you have to pick somewhere where you're going to deal with a lot of adversity Yeah, just scientifically. So it might be good to surround yourself with people you like hanging out with. Yeah, absolutely. And I, 
we can talk more about this. I think I think there's there's so many of these components that are important. And but as a first year student, or I guess not first, as a second year student, then like as a young med student, you are. It's hard to sometimes see that kind of perspective, right? I was just excited to be doing cool science, right? That I let alone I could understand that was cool. Right. <laughs> um, I think it's easy to get enamored by the science and then and not be thinking about the other stuff. Right. Yeah. So so after that rotation, I joined another or my second rotation for the summer was a different lab uh, that was much more of a like traditional neuroengineering lab. So no animals. It was all computer chips and hardware okay. and trying to design synthetic hardware, basically, that could recapitulate synaptic connections and uh, brain activity and mm-hmm. i thought that was pretty cool <laughs> I'm like mm-hmm. that sounds neat um and this was n- maybe a really good example of like um a place where the science was as good as it can be and the rotation got to the point where i thought about leaving um just like ending the phd part really? of my program yeah. yeah before you really even got rolling well, I'd say like six to eight weeks into that yeah. PhD, but yeah, before I'd even joined a lab, yeah. I I think it was just not a great fit personality-wise, mm-hmm. and uh, it had kind of, sh- I had, like I said, I was enjoying med school so much, and we're rotating during med school. I'm thinking like, med school's amazing. Uh, why am I doing this? Uh, this this isn't fun. I'm, I'm not feeling like I'm being... Um, I'm not sure respect is the right word, but like it doesn't feel like I'm really contributing. Yeah. I'm valued yeah. to, to, to science. Um, whereas in medicine that feels very uh, upfront, right? It's very easy to see what your worth is in, right. in medicine and, and how you help someone and someone looking at you and saying, thank you or right. calling you doctor as a first year med student, right. <laughs> you know, right. like exactly. you're like, Whoa, I like um, have some, I'm contributing something here. Yeah. 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 Um, and this experience I think was very much the opposite. And, I thought I think I was projecting. Okay, this must be what all of a PhD will be like. You know, why would I put myself through that? I might as well just commit back to med school. Mm-hmm. But uh, so obviously, I, I didn't do that. I you know got some good advice from wise people who were like, okay, hold on, just stick it out, like right. um, keep keep going. And I told people at that point, I don't care what kind of science I do. I just want to be in the best lab at Stanford. Um, that is known for mentorship and for creating and cultivating an environment of, of inclusion and productivity and like helping each other and no judgment. And every time I told someone that the answer was always the same PI. Like it was, everyone always said, Oh, well then obviously, you know, join Ben, Ben Bear's lab. And I would ask like what Ben did and people would either not know or tell me that he worked on a glia. Yeah. I don't even know what glia are. (laughs) Um, but I, given that experience that I had had and not feeling great about grad school, I was like, okay, well, fine. People say that, you know, like like I'm saying right now, people say that the mentor means more than the lab, so right. I will give them that yeah. chance. And if that doesn't work, then I have no qualms about leaving this right. program. And it's actually, uh, Dr. Bears said in his book that, um, that essentially, I'm paraphrasing, that when you're supposed to be picking a great mentor, you basically don't have any experience in any of the things that you need to basically equip yourself to pick a great mentor. Yeah. So you're at a real vulnerable point in yeah. your career. And like you said, you can walk into door A or door B. Maybe that dictates your 
career trajectory for the rest of your life. Yeah. So it is pretty crazy that we just we just sort of say, go find somebody to work with and good luck. Yeah, without like you said, and like Ben said, without the tools to evaluate that decision. Like here I was choosing what lab to rotate because of what building it was in. You know, right. That's yeah, exactly. just stupid. Yeah. Um, but it's because I didn't know enough, right? I didn't know what it means to write grants. I didn't know what it meant to have someone support you when you would go to a conference. I, those intangibles were things I couldn't even imagine right. yet. Um, let alone how could someone imagine that having not gone through this so exactly is there any formalized process at stanford that sort of lays these things out for you as you're starting to do rotations like is there is there is there any guidance like not necessarily explicitly saying don't go to this lab or go to this lab but but like try to look for these things and that the science might I, i remember first year second year med school People would always tell us the mentor is most important. Don't worry about science. Yeah, but like yeah. we're we're all here to do exciting science. So yeah. so we're kind of don't listen to any any of that advice. Right. Well, there's also this mentality that I see a lot in students here and as anywhere you go. And I feel though I think this was how I felt too that even when someone tells you that advice, we all kind of think to ourselves, yeah, but I'm not the typical student. That's right. Exactly or, right. Like I'm not like that may be true for most people. Like they wouldn't like this lab. Right. But I won't be like that right. because I am special. You know, right. and I'm some... like brilliant and not going to really need any support or whatever. Right. And I think we all kind of have that. Like, I don't want you to put me into this like pool of others that will have this problem. Like, and so honestly, I think at Stanford, it was probably very similar to here. Like there were senior students that we were connected with and mm-hmm. there were Google Docs and things where people would write about places they rotated. And right a sentence or two if they liked it or not so you could reach out to them but i was just like everyone else like i was just getting the same advice and not listening to it right <laughs> until the end you know eventually yeah. i did but, but you're like okay yeah and honestly i don't know that like it's, it's hard to know if you could really change that culture i think more and more that the students will hear this idea the better for sure um repetition is important for mm-hmm. learning and memory um, but at the same time, sometimes you're 22 and young and naive and that, that exactly. makes it challenging. Yeah. yeah. All right. So you picked a, so you picked, so you decided to take everybody's advice and you yeah. picked this lab. Yeah. Um, just take it away from there. Sure. So I started rotating in Ben's lab and it felt very different than anything I'd experienced before. I mean, I loved my undergrad experience too. And I think maybe it started to feel a little bit more mm-hmm. positive in that sense, but I, I, you know, Ben was an incredibly productive, brilliant scientist, and his lab had been pumping out really groundbreaking work for a while. So this was like a well-oiled machine that I was stepping into, and I mean, it was paired up with postdocs. And uh, how big was the lab? The lab was about twenty people. It's pretty big, um, and it was pretty evenly split: postdocs, grad students, and then uh, technicians, um, kind of thing. So. Uh, kind of good variety. Um, there were other MD PhD students. There were PhD only students. Um, every once in a while, you'd have an MD only student come for a summer. Mm-hmm. Could, there were some undergrads. There was a good mix of things um, and people. But everyone, you know, at that point in Ben's career, he had a really solid group of you know postdocs that he'd attract, and so everyone that was there was was really talented and mm-hmm. um, 
And this is also when I started to realize what it means to choose a culture in your lab. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that like a bunch of people are all really nice and great scientists in the same type of way. I started to understand, oh, this is something that the PI is choosing and and creating, right? Ben had been carefully selecting individuals that would cultivate that that kind of culture. Um, So before we get off that topic, do you know what his strategy was to do that? So Ben would really vet people well. So when we would interview postdocs, you know, they would come in for a very traditional interview and give a talk and the whole lab would be there, lab meeting, and everyone would be berating this person with questions mm-hmm. in a, not like in a um, inflammatory way, but like in a, like everyone's super curious. And so the, that person was just like scientifically bombarded. And then Ben would have that person spend at least 20 minutes with every single person in the lab that day. I mean, it must have been exhausting. Yeah. Um, and then I think Ben would, and I, I know this was true, he, he would spend a long, long time talking to the the people who knew these individuals well, like their references and their PI, like existing PIs and old mentors, asking questions, not just about like what their work ethic was and how you know talented they were, but really those probing questions about how they get along with others. And I think mm-hmm. was very intuitive and very, like very carefully listening for any warning signs that mm-hmm. could be um, an issue with that kind of like interpersonal interaction kind of side mm-hmm. of things. And he wasn't afraid to just say no. If you get one bad comment from someone and said like, mm-hmm. he just been this issue like to Ben, that could be enough to, to not right. want right. to do that. And and then the other thing I think is that Ben was very much, you know, we could talk about this a lot. Ben believed a lot in diversity and, um, mm-hmm kind of the background and the composition of the lab. And I think he was always striving to create a diverse background Mm -hmm. and people coming from uh, like um, different histories and experiences. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, when you put that together, I think that also just creates a really like rich environment Mm -hmm. um, that isn't always the case. So he was, he was always very carefully paying attention to that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Um, He said in his book, basically, that um, I like this line. It was something like, the the reason that research moves forward and that we don't just keep doing the same old thing in lab is because people come in with absolutely no experience yeah. or a totally different background, and then they're just like, well, we could do this or we could do this. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really true, and maybe you need those people to push other people's minds down different tracks. I think that's really interesting and yeah. maybe not thought about when people start putting together their labs. Yeah, because I think um, I think when you start putting together your lab, there's this like overwhelming urge to find people who already know how to do the thing that you right. know, right? Like, I want to get started. Or even once you are going, you're like, I want people who can come in and know these techniques that we do because that would be great to get pushing forward. And then exactly like you and Ben say, um, it gets stale, I think, mm-hmm. right? And my favorite thing so far, actually, in this lab, one of them is if we have, like, donors come by this morning. Actually, we had some uh, folks come by who are, like, on the board of trustees of a foundation Uh and have a little bit of scientific background, but not a lot. And, you know, explain the science that we do in the lab and you you hear these questions. Right. And you're like, wow, that's actually really insightful. Yeah, exactly. I can't believe I hadn't thought of that. And they have no – they're not – connected to the biology they're Mm -hmm. just listening to how you explain it and asking from a totally different perspective and point of view and uh 
and it can be so refreshing. And then so exactly that, when you bring people into the lab, I think new students who are totally coming from different fields and Mm -hmm. uh, different viewpoints is so critical. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it can feel hard to want to attract people like that because you feel like, oh, this is going to take longer to get started. Right, exactly. And then everybody else is helping train them and right. who knows. Right. But well, that's awesome. Yeah. So so tell us a little bit about your research, just really briefly. Yeah, so I was one of these people who came in not knowing anything about glia. So I sat in Ben's office and he was one of these people that he wasn't going to tell you what your rotation project was going to be, right? So he, he looked at me and was like, so what do you want to do for your rotation project? Really? And I'm like, yeah. yeah. I'm like, I don't know. I don't even know what Glia are, right? right? So I'm, you know, fumbling around thinking in my head, like, don't sound stupid. Um, uh, well, has anyone ever looked at a human Glia before? Mm-hmm. I think I just said that because med school is on my mind or something. Right. <laughs> He's like, no, that's a great idea. You should do a project on that. That's awesome. <laughs> that was my career. No, so, yeah. Yeah, again, serendipity, right? Yeah. What if I had said, like, I want to study, um, you know, C. elegans yeah. spleen microglia? Yeah. I don't know. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he would have probably said that was cool, too. Yeah. So um, I threw that out there. It kind of built into a project. Uh, so kind of had two halves of my PhD, the first being, uh, can we actually just purify human glia from patients? And I spent a long time working with neurosurgeons and other folks mm-hmm. at Stanford to get human tissue and fetal tissue and develop methods to purify cell types from the human brain, uh, including neurons and then all the other types of glia and comparing evolutionarily how these cells have changed from, from mice hmm. and what we understand in mice. Um, and then the second part of this, again, that stemmed from that very first conversation with Ben was, you know, at the time I didn't know if we would get human samples. So I said, Oh, like I know this IPS thing is a big deal. Now I didn't use pluripotent stem cells. Right. Like are people making glia out of that? He's like, great idea. You should do that. Yeah. <laughs> that was easy. So is he like pretty hands off and just kind of let you run? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Ben was uh, very hands off and you could, you could afford that because uh, he had great postdocs in the lab. Mm-hmm. Right. So I still had people to go to. I wasn't isolated. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't Ben uh, every day, every week, you know, guiding the project. He really wanted us to like kind of <laughs> set sail and see what happened. Yeah. Uh, so that was the other big part of my PhD was like figuring out ways to grow human glia from IPS cells and see how they compared to the real thing. And those things really ended up helping form the foundation in my lab now. Mm-hmm. So so then you, let's fast forward now because you mm-hmm. let's go through med school real quickly. The last couple of years of med school sure. and then your decision to come to Emory and start your lab. Sure. Um, because I want to get into that and okay. what you took from your PhD experience. Yeah, um, it was a, it was a very a lot of things happened at the end of med school. So please, if you know, you can fast forward no, the no, part that you want <laughs> to get through. But so um, I finished my PhD in four years, technically mm-hmm. uh, four years within the lab. But like I said, we rotate before we get there so it's more like five years total um but i guess i was you know done with six years of my md phd program and i i had a great phd i was fortunate i was productive with ben i loved my time there um i worked on a bunch of different projects and collaborations and so i was you know i was really happy and knew that science was in my future but i was definitely eager to like get back to the clinic i was Mm -hmm. itching for that i I, my friends at this point were like finishing residency. <laughs> like, right. Um, and I felt 
jealous, right? I wanted to know what they were going through. They would always come over and talk to us about crazy cases they saw as an intern or whatever they were doing. And I, I didn't, I didn't have that. So I was, I was eager to get back. So I went back to med school and right around the time I went back is when, uh, Ben, so Ben, um, the day of a thesis defense for a close friend in the lab, uh, Ben had a heart attack, drove himself to the hospital, which is a very Ben thing to do after his yeah. heart attack, <laughs> uh, drove himself to the hospital and, uh, you know, Virgil's triad, uh, it's unclear why he was clotting so much. Yeah. And then they found out that he had um, pretty late stage pancreatic cancer. So this was the, this was, um, kind of a big shock for a lot of people. Ben was pretty young, you know, mm-hmm. 60 at the time. And, uh, it was a little hard because I was just transitioning out of the lab, which was already like, I was already kind of missing all these people right. and then Ben got sick and I uh, went back to med school and that transition is, you know, it's a, it's a difficult one. I think for me it was difficult in different ways, right? I, I had these other things on my mind um, and um, there's this part of transitioning back into the clinic where you go from being a world expert in something, right? Like, I mean, I'm, I don't know how many people are making human glia out of IPS cells, but I enjoyed being one of those people. Right. And uh, people come to you and they're emailing you as this expert and uh, it feels great. Like you, you really worked really hard to get there. <laughs> and then the next day you're the third year student uh, on the psych team and you don't yeah. even know how to like open up Epic on the computer. Yeah. That's a far fall <laughs> like yeah. in one day. And I remember that that transition was pretty hard for me. Just mm-hmm. not so much oh, I don't remember medicine. It was like, oh, I um, I have no authority here whatsoever and I don't know what I'm doing. And right. it's, uh, so um, it took me some time. It took me about a month or two to kind of get my bearings back in med school. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, med school was great. I like the, the more clinical rotations I went through, the kind of hang, get the hang of it and uh, loved like talking with patients and, engaging with people in a very different way and using a different part of my brain. But throughout a lot of that process, I was still, I mean, maybe part of this was Ben being sick and visiting Mm -hmm. him in the hospital and everything, but I was definitely still missing what I'd had for the past four years before Mm -hmm. that, right? I was missing being in the lab and thinking of questions and trying new experiments. And like, I just couldn't get that out of my mind. Mm And, um, there were, were for the first time in my life, there were some days that I'd wake up, I think, oh man, okay, I gotta, gotta get through clinic today. This mm-hmm. is gonna be a long day, you know. Like, yeah. I know I can do it, and I get there, and it would be fun, and I'd enjoy it. Um, but I never really had felt that before. Right? Mm-hmm. That was kind of a new thing for me, uh, and so um, I had narrowed down my choices of uh, uh, residency to uh, pediatric neurology, which is very apropos for mm-hmm. what I had studied in Ben's lab. Right. And uh, medical genetics, which okay. is kind of a more rare one. You don't hear that yeah. that one as much. But if anyone listening, medical genetics is an awesome <laughs> field. I wish I like people more people knew about it. But it's also a really conducive career to like um, uh, MD PhD lifestyle. Okay. It's a it's a really fun fun career. So I narrowed it down to those two, and uh, was pretty sure I would do one of the two of them. And I think part of this comes also from uh, it's 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 like parenting. You know, Ben. Ben would always tell me, like, I, I can't wait till you're, like, head of some clinical department or whatever. Like, he would always say this yeah. to me. 
um, assuming that like I was on the sick trajectory that, mm-hmm. that like he had planned out. And sure, he said this to every single person that was an MD PhD. Yeah. But like, I think in my mind it was like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to go to residency, supposed to like start my lab, right? Rise up the ranks, maybe like yeah, lead some like clinical department yeah. or something like that one day, and that's my the plan for steven right right <laughs> um and so like it just was like the thing you do like the same way in like high school if everyone goes to college at your high school you're just like yeah i'm going to college because yeah. everyone else goes to college um so so at that time um my wife was uh so my wife is also a clinician she's a veterinarian she's mm-hmm. been trained in veterinary medicine and she had practiced and decided that she wanted to go back to school to get her phd mm-hmm. so she was thinking about where she would do that, and um, uh, she, uh, you know, I, we were trying to. This two-body problem is always very challenging. Yeah, exactly. right? I mean, everyone has probably many people have gone through this, um, and it's never like a simple solution. So, mm-hmm. we were kind of really out of sync as far as what our plans were, um, just years-wise. And so I told her at the time, I think you know she should go start her PhD program wherever she felt would be a great place and that I, you know, I work hard, but I should be able to hopefully join and do residency um, wherever that was. Most places we looked at, there were multiple schools or, you know, multiple options. Mm-hmm. So she ended up choosing uh, Emory is a great, amazing place for her to do her PhD. And um, I was like, that's great. I'll come out and do my clinical mm-hmm. rotations and uh, figure out whether I'm going to be a geneticist or a neurologist. Right. <laughs> Uh, so this was, gosh, 2017. Mm-hmm. Feels like a long time ago, but it yeah. really wasn't. Um, and I came out here for the summer, applied to come to Emory as a student and mm-hmm. do my rotations. And it was awesome. I loved it. I worked at the Children's Hospital here and mm-hmm. uh, worked in, with Pete's Neuro Group and then did um, work with some people in the uh, medical genetics mm-hmm. um, clinic. And it was great. And the people that I worked with were as good as you could ask for. And the patients were interesting and like everything was the way it's supposed to be. And I tell people all the time, like, I, you know, there's nothing more I could have asked for. And I, w- I would be w- walking in the morning to clinic and think to myself, like, if I could choose, I would go to lab right now. Mm-hmm. Despite how amazing yeah, this clinical experience is, I think that well, that's the reality. And uh, I think I have to listen to that because um, I've never had a gut feeling before. But if, if I ever have, this might be the closest thing to it. Yeah. I was like, I, I just think that's the, the right thing for me. But that's a really hard reality to face, especially as a senior, like end of the pro- process, mm-hmm. MDPSG student. Like, what are people going to think? What are people going to say to me? Like, is this even okay? Am I just screwing up my career? Blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. You go on and on and on. Um, so, of course, you know, Ben at the time was still, uh, Ben was around and not doing so great. He had gone through a couple of rounds of chemo, but was still quite mentally with it. And I remember having a conversation with him uh, at his house. And, he, you know, he was just like, Stephen, this seems so easy. Like, it sounds like you've completely made up your mind. You know, yeah. Like, um, you just need to go for this and stop like second guessing it. And, you know, his words meant a lot to me and uh, kind of helped me decide to to not do residency and, and to, you know, look for something different. Mm-hmm. And then from there, <laughs> presumably that was a difficult conversation to have with everybody who's 
wanting you to do residency, all your clinical mentors. and Yeah, I, I did not enjoy it. It was, uh, it was hard. I mean, I remember talking to a lot of people and I will say I must have t- had like 20 or 30 like meetings, you know, mm-hmm. email me saying, hey, can I chat with you about my career directions? And everyone gets really excited when you get an email like that. Yeah. Like it is really fun when someone comes to you, like you're their mentor and they, and they want to talk to you about this stuff. But then when you go and tell them that you like don't want to do the career they're doing, yeah, <laughs> people kind of change their tune a little bit. Yeah, and I I think of the like thirty people I talked to, I I, I think maybe twenty four or five of them probably told me I was making the biggest mistake really? in my life. Yeah, um, they're like Stephen. It it kind of reminds me actually of this this thing that we were just talking about earlier about like as a first year grad student you don't know the things that you're supposed to know to pick a lab, right? And people were kind of using that argument um, for me as well. Like, you think you don't want to do this, but how do you know what it's like to be a resident right. or to be a doctor? And I think that's so true, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know what it's like. Um, but I wasn't willing to go through like it's a much bigger sacrifice than maybe a rotation is, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the difference. Um, I wasn't willing to go through six, seven years of something. Um, just to find out right if that could have could be the thing that right. i wanted it to be and so it was hard for me to tell people and then to stick with my kind of decision and mm-hmm. um i'm telling my program director at, at stanford was something that really kept me up at night i was not looking forward to it and when i did tell him i was super relieved because he was just like that's great like, really? he was one of those few people yeah he was like that's great you know um I think let me know how I can help you like with whatever's next. And I think he had realized that this, what my career trajectory was is another form of success for the program. It's just Mm -hmm. a different version of success than maybe many people see. Right. Um, And so I was very grateful that he had that reaction despite many other people telling me that, you know, I was making a critical mistake. Right. Um, so yeah so those conversations were were challenging it was also hard because i i think when i was telling people that and they said well what are you gonna do instead it's not like i said oh i'm getting ready to be faculty at emory i I think i didn't quite have that plan worked Mm -hmm. out yet and so people were kind of like all right right he's just gonna get lost in the wind and like right you know that's walk through the sahara for (laughs) right 20 years um go be a glass blower again yeah right <laughs> although it's dangerous with you and glass <laughs> that's true yeah i can blow glass but i still have some of my fingers yeah. the lab. <laughs> um so yeah so that was a, a tough time uh just trying to figure out this whole thing and mm-hmm. uh so basically i you know my wife was a student at emory and that, at that point and i was very much committed to coming here because i uh, you know, we'd spent a long time, long distance before that already. Okay. I think like seven years okay. of our uh, relationship before we were in California together was long distance. So that wasn't going to happen again. So I kind of decided like, I'm, I'm going to Atlanta and I'm going to do some cool science. Yeah. That's what, that's, <laughs> that's gotta happen. Yeah. And, uh, but I didn't know how, and I was looking around for, uh, interesting postdocs that, that might fit the bill. And, um, not quite finding just the right match that I really wanted. And at that time, I remember um, I had come back from a trip and I told Ben this. I'm like, yeah, you know, what do you think? And, and Ben kind of just looked at me and was like, well, why are you not applying for jobs? Yeah. I was like, uh, I think you're forgetting, Ben. Like, i missing some of my training. Right. <laughs> I missed finish. a step. And like, yeah. uh, he's like, no, I think you're ready. I think you should, I think you should apply to, 
for positions and really yeah and you know hearing ben say that mm-hmm. uh someone who knew knew me well and also obviously has hired many people throughout his right. career like i think was a huge confidence boost and that and then a few other faculties in that small number out of 30 who were very supportive uh i heard the same thing people were saying like why don't you just apply for for jobs and mm-hmm. you know as soon as you hear people that you respect tell you these things you start to like build that self-confidence back right. up and you're like okay why not yeah absolutely. Um, and so that's pretty much what i did i applied for positions here at emory and um got very fortunate to have something work out in the, the department of human genetics kind of taking a chance on me and investing in me and like um god it's been a whirlwind since Mm -hmm. then but it's been fun yeah that's fascinating yeah um so how much so when when i was preparing for this um i knew some about your story and then Mm -hmm. i was reading dr barris book yeah and his career trajectory sort of similarly serendipitous yeah and also does a bunch of clinical training so he he did uh md then then actually residency, residency yeah and then then a phd yep. but from that point on then didn't do any clinical medicine yep w- was any of that in the back of your mind i think so um so ben um i think ben liked clinical medicine i wish i could have seen ben as a, a doctor yeah. though like i i'm <laughs> so desperately um, I think it would have been fun to see him mm-hmm. uh, with patients, but you know Ben was a, such an intellectually curious person, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the things that I appreciated when I was in the lab is I saw how much he loved his job. I mm-hmm. I could just there are some people who you know like they found the right thing for them. Like right. uh, Ben worked so hard; he was there all the time, but not ever complaining. Like you know he complained about bad things people would do but he would never complain about like his job or having to write a grant or never like anything about a student or like he just loved the idea of being a professor Mm -hmm. and there was one night um we were just telling this story at a reunion uh last week a bunch of um old call ourselves barasites ben's lab uh so bears lab alum we're all meeting at the society for neuroscience telling stories about ben and kind of reminiscing and there's this thing we used to say where if you got stuck late in the lo- like late at night in the lab, um, it'd be like 11 or 12 at night, and then Ben would probably still be there, and he'd come into the room and he'd find you, and th- we'd say you got Ben because then you'd be stuck there for like two hours talking really? to Ben. Like there's yeah. no way out of it. You couldn't like you couldn't go do an experiment. Like he just wanted to talk to you about God knows what for like two really? hours. But yeah, we all like have very fond memories of this because yeah. like that's when we interacted with Ben. One of those nights, I got Ben. And I was there oftentimes at night because I worked with this human tissue. It would come at weird hours. Like, I yeah. couldn't control it. And so I remember being in a stairwell of all places, like, like at midnight. Ben's in a stairwell, of course. And uh, <laughs> so here we are for, like, an hour talking awkwardly. Um, and we're talking about the future and everything. I think I must have been, like, a uh, been in the lab for, like, three years or something at okay. the time. And Ben, I remember at the end of the conversation, like, just – stopping for a second like thinking to himself and then like saying to me that he just thought he's like i'm so lucky like i have the best job in the whole world like um you know medicine was okay but like this is this is awesome right like i love getting to like talk to students and do all these things and ask questions big questions and meet people around the world who are who are asking similar questions and like him saying that i think 
I was like, I want that. Right, <laughs> like, exactly. Like, that sounds awesome. Like, yeah. I want that job and I want to be as happy. And I think very much seeing that he was someone who then, I don't know if gave up is the right word, but like had just committed fully to a career in, in research mm-hmm. and felt that happy. I right. think it was like an example, like, okay, I could, I could feel that happy too. Um, there are people who don't just, who don't do everything and are still really satisfied. Right. Um, so. right. So, so you weren't so worried about potentially regretting this decision. I mean, presumably you were worried about yeah. it, but, but at least you had this example of someone who totally loved their life. Yeah. I think that definitely helped. I think the regret definitely was something I was scared of. Mm-hmm. Um, for the first few months because everyone was telling me I would. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. Like knowing that there were people who had kind of chosen at some point to give up the clinical part and were happy. Yeah. It did, mm-hmm. it did make me feel better. Yeah. And that it was someone that like Ben, who I, I think I identified with, I thought like, at least I wanted to be like Ben. Right. right. So I'm like, Oh, like, well, if I'm like that and he's happy, right. <laughs> then I'll be happy too. Yeah. So, so, so then the last 10 pages of this book, he talks about, mentorship and diversity yeah. Yeah. and just before we close i, w- I want to ask now that you have your own lab yeah. right and you got to kind of carry this legacy and what of those lessons did you learn then and maybe have reflected on now that you want to like really bring into your lab yeah i mean ben was obviously gave us all who have started labs um, and gone through ben's lab something to aspire to mm-hmm. I think there are definitely some more outward things that I do very consciously. And then there's obviously, I'm sure, a lot of more unconscious things that were instilled in me just by seeing Ben be the kind of mentor and introduce the kind of diversity that he does. Um, So I knew when I started my lab, I wanted to carry a lot of these things forward. Um, I didn't exactly know how, right? I didn't know, like, how do you build diversity like i i don't know there's not like some recipe right it's not like and ben didn't leave a script behind <laughs> i was like okay well first you find this person <laughs> like yeah. so i think i was kind of nervous like well how will i cultivate that um so there's a couple outward things that i think i started doing um so one is being very just vocal about that uh i think attracts a diverse crowd. So telling people that you're interested in creating a diverse environment mm-hmm. makes people from diverse environments want to be part of your group. Yeah. And um, that's important first. You got to find, find yeah. people. Um, another thing, you know, for example, it's so easy. I did this was like, I, you know, I think my wife uh, suggested this, which is wonderful. Like I just put a sentence on my website, right. That um, I'm interested in recruiting people and the next sentence is that we're looking for to create like a diverse group of individuals who are all trying to do um, good science and help each other and I think seeing things like that definitely does attract um, a, a bigger range of people um, so those are maybe some of the more like conscious decisions that I made that I where I thought to myself like Ben had this diverse environment like how do I do that <laughs> Um, and then I think that like, it's just critical for me to help instill in my trainees the same mentality, right? Because I think that if you instill that on your trainees, like everyone who's in your lab, how important it is to have these different ideas and people coming from different backgrounds and, um, and no judgment space and that kind of thing. I think that like, that then just quickly starts to permeate and feel like the culture. So as soon as new people come in, 
they feel welcome. They feel like, oh yeah, okay, I am a, I mean, maybe like a plant, <laughs> I'm a botanist, but these are a bunch of cool people who are gonna teach me about neuroscience and, uh, or I grew up in a very different cultural experience, but like everyone here is super non-judgmental and, and welcoming. Like I want to stay here, um, and so I, I've kind of sometimes consciously, sometimes just I think hopefully by my actions and things that I learned from Ben kind of portray that. Mm-hmm. I hope so at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that kind of yeah. yeah? Absolutely. I mean, sense? it's an intangible, which mm-hmm. is what we're trying to get at, but. I think that's as good an answer as any as far as setting the tone. Yeah. So I do think it's intangible, but like, and I, I talk about this a lot though. I, I think you, it's not like it just comes to you if you wait and some people get lucky and have a diverse group and others don't. So like, like I said, there, there are these, some of these things that I think people should and can do to kind of um, make their environment feel welcoming um, and, and that could yeah just be something you write on your website or you look someone in the eye when they come in here and you tell them that's important to you right uh, and not everyone maybe knows that you can or should say that kind right. of stuff yeah, exactly. um, but i think as a student when you feel vulnerable and there's a power dynamic when you hear someone say that i think it, it can alleviate a lot of those yeah. um a lot of that pressure that you may be feeling yeah. we need more so actually um ben's article on choosing a good mentor or whatever yeah. it's sort of an interesting thing to read now mm. because i'm whatever fourth year of yeah. grad school and i i rotated in labs where i have those people are still my mentors mm. and i like run with them a couple times yeah, a week yeah. but i didn't choose that lab because the science wasn't exactly where i wanted to be and i my wife and i always talk about like mm. if someone had handed me that day one of grad school or, or at least yeah. i had been thinking about it and I think a lot of people don't. Yeah, you know. but like that, this idea of like, oh, it won't be me. I like, I'm gonna be that person who can choose the science and get along with this person. That I no totally believed that. I mean, I totally <laughs> thought that. I was like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, I was a technician for four years before, yeah. so I was like, I know how to do. I can do Western blot. Yeah. Was a PI really? Yeah. It's gonna give me some funding, and I'm gonna run. Yeah. And I didn't have a bad experience, luckily. But I know lots of people who had horrible experiences and had to switch labs or yeah um but like your question is an important one right like how do you how do you convince a first year whatever your yeah. student is and I, I don't know right like honestly i think maybe the answer is more about like making sure that mentors are good mentors yeah than it is like putting the onus on a student to like yeah have to distinguish that right so you think maybe at a programmatic level we need to address that sometimes i feel like i see i'm still new here so i don't know yeah. everyone but i, I most people are pretty good but there's always exceptions and yeah. like sometimes i see that and think okay everyone knows this person's an a-hole right <laughs> like yeah. why are we why are we not stepping in like why yeah. are we making now the the responsibility to be the student mm-hmm. to have to like realize really maturely like right. oh even though they do cool science and are funded by like 10 grants right that this might not be the best training environment. Like, right. it's kind of unfair. Right. Absolutely. Um, that being said, I don't think, I don't know what mechanism could ever exist that the school could then go in and be like, no more students for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it, I kind of feel like in principle, that's how it should be. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, it sounds like from what I hear about what you've talked about, Ben, and, and like the best PIs I know, they're, 
they're usually super optimistic people. Yeah. Which is crazy because research is like about failing yeah. 95% of the time. Yeah, yeah. But when you have an experience like that early on, um, it makes you kind of cynical. And I wonder if that just sets you up for failure your whole career. Yeah. I mean, I know of people in our program who I think were like a lot more optimistic at the beginning and they've had like these negative experiences uh, since starting grad school. How much of that? then affects their outlook moving forward and because they chose the wrong lab like that sets the stage and then they just give up on I think, science I think it completely sets the stage yeah. um, and so then as administrators do you try to steer people again in a lab where the mentorship is there where the PI respects the fact that you're an MD-PhD student <clears throat> and you know what you're doing after you finish your PhD you're going back to medical school and this gets back to our conversation with, uh, you know, at Stanford, you can take a, a month or two and do rotations in the middle of your PhD. Yeah. I think here, part of the concern is also how the PI would respond to that. Because I think for the most part, uh, we have this concern here that the PI is not going to let you take that time off. Like it's going to cause a massive disruption to the project and, yeah. and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, I mean, I don't know how you navigate through that, but uh. yeah. So, do you feel like most of the MD PhD students here join the same labs? As in, like, let's say there's five hundred labs at Emory mm -hmm. that you could join across the departments. Do you feel like the students are all clustered in like the same fifty labs, or do you think it's pretty like every year? It's there's a few instances of, like Sean Stoll. No, it, I think it's pretty spread out. Okay. In my experience, mm -hmm. you're only allowed to have two. Oh, two one. Two MD PhD students. Like any faculty. Oh, only. Any faculty. Moment. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. That yeah. helps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but like I 100% agree that like no one stays in science if you don't have an amazing, not amazing, but, like very good PhD. Mm -hmm. I can't think of almost any example of someone who like is now faculty where they weren't like oh yeah my phd was a good good experience yeah like so <laughs> huge issue there That's already crazy. where like that means that you have to make sure that you've chosen someone good to at least get that first cut off um and i know a lot of people not just who like don't go into science but like who just quit the phd because they've had bad mentors so then i feel like the program for their own interest they, and for the interest of the student, like you need to make sure they choose a good lab. I know. It sets the stage. Yeah. It makes sense. Like it if does. you have a shitty experience, you're yeah. not going to want to do this. But so we, it makes sense to try to like we just don't have figure out like. But how do you quantify that? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. the hard. So Ben always talked about. I think it's in the paper, but there's like M index. Yeah. Yeah, like this mentorship index, like which he admits like is only applicable if you're like a more senior investigator. Mm -hmm. But, but fine, at least then that would be something like there are some of these repeat offenders where like yeah. every single person coming out of that lab leaves science. Right. That should be like not just like a secret that you have to find out for yourself. It should be like publicly known in it. Right. And I think that students, if it were a little bit more out there, students would be a little bit less likely to just pull the whole I won't be like them argument. Right. If it's like. Oh, everyone, everyone knows, like, like, online, where their H index is, their M index yeah. is a zero. Right. You'd be, like, embarrassed to do a, like, a yeah. rotation with yeah. them. Yeah. 
there is no is there a source like out there that tells you that kind of information there's this like site I don't know, was like, there used to be like this like ancestry kind of like site yeah. where like it would show you the pedigree of all these scientists. It's the tree. Like, is it the, called the tree? I, it, it has a, a better name than that, but it yeah. it has all the trainees. But um, the problem is it only shows the ones that are still in science, I think. I don't think it oh, shows really? people who like joined and left. Or, or yeah. So I don't think there is a, I think a it's place. A, I, could, I think it could be really bad in some cases where like, you know, almost like defamation if you were to publish something like that yeah but uh, my <laughs> brother uh lives in san francisco he works for uh this company they have uh real estate agents like success records yeah like track records yeah so you want the best yeah. you know real yeah. estate agent who's yeah. gonna sell your home for the most yeah. amount of money yeah. in the shortest time possible and that's public yeah. like a but similar thing so sticky exists. because it's like you don't have to collaborate with the other realtors, and, and you, you know it's like well, you yeah. buy your house and that's it. As this is like, if you don't, if you say this mentor was horrible, and then twenty years down the line, they're reviewing your grant or whatever. It's, I mean, you'd have to make it totally anonymous, and then that's all, got its own set of problems. Yeah, and there's also this like Ben had people, Ben had postdocs in the lab who, who left. It wasn't like perfect, right? Yeah. Like, there were a few people, and not often, but like there will always be contentious environments and so you can't it's sometimes unfair to judge and say like this person's bad because they've had four bad four people who like love science right. maybe they, they were four really bad hires yeah but but to me like what i wish was like forced of students would be like go to these meetings where you're thinking about rotating and the mentors should volunteer this information right i have trained x people right why of them are yeah like doing this and that like you should know that you know, of course not everyone's worked out. But, like, to me, that's the golden, like, you hear that, okay, fine. Now you can think about routine. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I don't think most people will ever even wait to hear that or know that. No. Uh, most PIs don't volunteer that right. information. Yeah. Um, well, awesome. This was awesome. Thank you for taking so much time yeah. to talk to us. It's been fun. Um, I feel like we could go another three hours about <laughs> all kinds of stuff. But, mm-hmm. um We'll close it here. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk about this stuff. And yeah. It was really fun. Yeah. Thanks. That's it for us this week. We want to thank Dr. Sloan again for taking the time to sit down and share his story with us. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please rate, subscribe, and recommend us to others you think would appreciate this podcast. As always, I want to thank the amazing people who actually make this podcast possible. Joe Banke for audio production, Carrie Jansen for social media coordination, Michael Sayag for feedback on the content and coordinating interviews, and Brian Robinson, our faculty advisor. Join us in a couple of weeks for our next episode. We'll see you then.